Hello, and welcome to Workle's Workplace Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. On this edition of the Workplace Happiness Podcast, I am absolutely thrilled to be talking to Belinda Kirk. Belinda Kirk, as many of you will know, is an explorer. She's done all sorts of amazing things. She's walked across deserts, through jungles, sailed across oceans, and has the unique distinction of having a record for having rowed around the United Kingdom. But in addition to that, she's a great believer in the power of adventure to improve your well-being and has started Adventure Revolution, all of which we're going to find out about over the next 40 minutes. Belinda, welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast. Uh, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to come along. It's, it's always good to talk about adventure. So let's, let's start then with your adventure story in your childhood. Was there anything in your childhood that led you to believe that one day you would become a famous explorer? I think it all began for me, and I think I'm trying to do this for my own son, is I think those formative years, being outside and having a certain sense of freedom is really, really important. I was very fortunate that I grew up on um, um, Alderney, which is one of the Channel Islands. Because it's such a small island in a rugged sort of place, people weren't worried, or the society wasn't so worried about cars. Um, we weren't worried about stranger danger. Those sorts of things that make, our, make us cottonball our kids nowadays and make us worry about their, their physical safety, um, they weren't such a problem living on such a sort of wild little island. So I was able to have this incredible freedom. And I think that probably was the most overwhelming sort of gift to, to me in my childhood. I had a secret garden that um, I, I would sometimes camp out in. I would climb trees. I would do all of those sorts of swallows and Amazon type of, you know, romantic ideas of what childhood should be. Um, there's a lot of old bunkers on um, from World War Two all over um, Alderney and you could sort of we'd, we'd have little campfires in them and I mean just I just had this freedom I'd get on my bicycle in the morning and I'd go out all day uh, either on my own or with my friend um, who lived just down the road and we would just explore and I think that was probably the most effective an extraordinary way um, to sort of start me off as an explorer. Um, the word feral was used a lot. Um, <laughs> and I like that and I'm proud of that. And I would be very proud if someone said that my child was feral. Um, but it's obviously the community, I don't know, but not everyone would, I understand that as well. So I think I had a really great start. That was up until I was about eight, I think seven, eight, nine years old. And I think those very early years really do help form you know, form character in some way. And what um, about your parents? Did they encourage that? Were they great travellers or explorers or? Well, my mother had grown up in Africa and her, so my grandfather um, was a zoology professor 
in for most of his career in different parts of Africa. And those stories of Africa were the other really big inspiration to me. Um, so when I was 18, I went off to Africa on my own because of these wonderful stories, lyrical stories that were, were sort of woven into bedtimes and stuff when my, grand, my grandpa would sort of put me to bed and tell me these stories. And also my grandparents' house was full of, were full of drums and spears and there was just a real magic about it all. Um, so I think that those two things had a real deep impact. And then in terms of your, your studies, um, was there any particular focus you had there that again drew you towards the career that you've had? So when I was at school, I said to my, I remember distinctly saying to my careers advisor, I remember sitting in this very small room. She was sat directly opposite me. I remember it so clearly. And I remember saying to her, I want to be an explorer. And she just looked at me blankly and basically tried to persuade me out of it and tell, basically told me that I wasn't going to, that's not possible. You can't actually do that. Um, and so I then quickly settled on, well, the closest thing I can do as a job is to be David Attenborough's assistant. Because essentially, I'll, it'll be a bit like being an explorer, but it's a paid job. It's at the BBC, which is a renowned, you know, bra you know we all love the BBC. It's like, okay, my mum and dad will tick that off. The career advisor will tick that off. And I, it's, a it's, a, you know, it's a known job. So... Um, I start, that became my focus to become David Attenborough's assistant um, and that was when I was about 16 I think I, I was definitely at the age of 16 I definitely wanted to be David Attenborough's assistant at that point um, and that led me I mean I was already very interested in wildlife and because of my grandfather being a zoology professor and all of his his influence on me um, he was such a kind and modest man that I that I had these these links to biology, so I did bio, so I applied to do biological sciences at Oxford, um, and that's where I eventually um, you know did my degree. And biological field work is very much like being an explorer. Um, so I became a, a, a field biologist for a little while, um, while I tried to figure out how to be David Attenborough's assistant. <laughs> so even at university, you still had that ambition. I think when I was very young I talked about being an explorer and then I think I lost my confidence and stopped believing that I would be able to do something like that and that was due to problems at home as well as probably this career advisor not helping things and so um, I started to yeah focus on what's an actual job you know what's a, a box with a name on it um, this is a job I need to I need to contain my ideas and my dreams and I have to put them into a box. So at university, did, were you still wedded to David Attenborough's assistant? So you graduated. Um, oh, yes. Was, was that still the thing that you had in mind? Did you wavered from that? No. I'm quite focused and determined. Um, <laughs> my, my partner of 20 years would probably tell me to use different words, um, stubborn or something. Um, I, I basically went to university to do biological sciences because I thought that that would get me in the door at the BBC. 
And then I went on to do a film course, a, a master's at Bristol University, um, because I thought that was the next tick box, essentially. Um, and also because in Bristol, that's obviously where the natural history unit is. So I thought there were links to that and it would help me get my foot in the door. And that did. That then opened me, opened the door to getting um, a job making tea um, <laughs> at, the, at the BBC um, and being a runner. And I mean, that was great because, you know, you have to get in, you have to get in the door. So, so it's clear to everybody listening to this that at a very early age, you had an instinct about what you wanted to do. You then pursued it through your academic studies. You were super determined and um, uh, you got a job uh, running tea at the BBC in Bristol. Uh, so what happened then? Did you get to be David Attenborough's assistant? That's what everybody wants to know now. Well, I did actually. Hey! I, <laughs> I know, and I and he is one of the. I mean, I know everyone thinks of him as a legend, but he he truly is um, a national treasure. Um, I I only worked with him a little bit. I worked in uh, I worked on quite a lot of natural history films, but also a lot of adventure and survival films. And I actually ended up realizing that I wanted to do more of that as well. So. I did work with Dave Attenborough two, on two occasions, um, and yeah, um, I suppose I finally made it. But as it is in life, by the time you get to where you've been aiming, you want you're, you're already aiming somewhere else. You're already looking ahead. And, um, I'm not maybe not very good at stopping and enjoying the, the moment. I was. Uh, um, I at the same time also as working my career up inside the BBC. I never stopped exploring. I was, I had a dual career. I was always running expeditions as well. I was, I was never a staff member at BBC because maybe half of my time was spent on expeditions, um, youth development expeditions, scientific expeditions, and also personal challenges. So I was always running quite a dual career um, for a good decade, I'd say. So, so let's explore that a little bit more. Okay. So when you casually drop into the conversation, I ran expeditions. How, how did you do that? Did, did you just, you put an ad in the paper saying, I'm going on an expedition, anybody want to come with me? I mean, what, what does that mean, I ran expeditions? Um, it's a good question. And I think it's, it's easier today than, than it was. Certain jobs don't have a career ladder. You just have to figure it out. I'm a great believer in start doing something, pay for it, you know, join as an assistant, whatever you can do to learn your trade. And then you will, um, as an, almost as an apprentice, and then you will start to um, get paid, offered paid work. And that's what I had to do with expeditions. I would save every penny, put everything I had, any income. I was a student, I was sort of waiting tables and doing that sort of thing when I was working at the BBC, all my money went on expeditions. So until I built up a head of experience, a wealth of experience sort of thing, I couldn't expect someone to employ me. When I was 18, I went to Africa. And part of that first trip, I spent three months on a biological research expedition where I was totally green. I didn't know, I mean, I'd never left Europe. Um, well, actually, as a young child, I had, but I, I really didn't know anything about anything. I signed up, 
and I trusted them completely to tell me what to do. Well, Where'd you sign up for an expedition? There's, there's still wonderful organisations out there. There are youth development expedition organisations out there, lots of charities and some companies as well. Um, there's Raleigh International, which is very well known. A BSES, which is now called the British Exploring Society. They're based at the Royal Geographical Society. They're the organisation I've done the, uh, the most expeditions with and, and they are just wonderful, do wonderful work. There's so many, I, don't, I almost don't know who to, ex I don't want to exclude anyone. <laughs> if somebody's listening now, the best thing for them to do is Google expedition, find some of those organisations and then see where they're going to and what they need and apply to go. Is that, is that the thing you have to do? Yeah. I think the best way to start, if you were starting from scratch, is two things. A, join an expedition, as you say. There are expedition companies out there that will take you. You have to raise money. You have to pay, you know, pay to go. And you will learn on the, on the job, as it were. And also, start getting qualifications. There's some wonderful qualifications from mountain leader to uh, remote first aid, jungle skills. There's all sorts of training you can get. And I think if you're starting from scratch now, there's so much out there that you can, you can, start, you, you can start. But you, but you can't, like anything, you have to get trained. You have to build um, experience um, and get qualifications. So if you're, if you're running two jobs, so you finish university, you're, um, uh, you've started by being a, a tea runner at the BBC in Bristol, and at the same time you're off on expeditions, um, tell, tell me about how you enjoyed those jobs differently. Did you love them both? Was, was the BBC your favourite thing or was exploring your favourite thing? And how were they the same or how were they different? That's a really very good question. I think there was an element of duty to the job at the BBC, whereas exploring was something that I always just wanted to do and I would pay to do it. And I would still today, I have to get my fix of adventure. Um, so the, there was a compromise with the TV work because um, I really enjoyed taking teams into the middle of nowhere and, and arranging the logistics. And I, I, I'm really good at that and I love that. I love guiding adventure. That is what I'm good at. And, and obviously you enjoy what you're good at. Um, but in the end, I mean, I spent a long time working in television, but the end, I, I left TV and, 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 and plumped for one career instead of two. And that was the expeditions and the adventures because that's actually where my heart is and was. Um, and because I'm a, I'm, I was quite an average film director <laughs> by the time I got to directing, I was okay, but I was never going to be Tarantino. I was never going to be great. Whereas I loved, loved taking people on adventures. So you very lightly touched on the, the when you were with the BBC, you would lead expeditions. What you're not really revealing to listeners at this point is that you rose from joining to do the tea to uh, direct programs, adventure programs. Um, you work with Bear Grylls and Ray Mears and lots of people there, uh, helping them uh, produce their programs. Um, so how do you get from being the person doing the tea for everybody 
to having that job directing adventure programs uh, on the TV because because that in itself is a is a huge journey. Yes, and I absolutely loved my job during that time. I, I did plump for one in the end, but I loved working in TV as the logistics person. So essentially, I, I had this huge wealth of knowledge from running expeditions. I had been to very remote places. I had connections and uh, you know, contacts and knowledge of unusual places. So if people wanted someone to help get a film crew into the middle of Borneo, they'd come to me. I had a very niche, a niche role. I think someone called me once, you're that chick that does jungles. Um, yeah, can you come and help us with this gorilla program we're doing? And it's like, okay, um, you know, um, so I, I carved a very specific niche because I had these, this dual career. Um, because really I got into TV, not because I wanted to make films, although I did, I wanted to make films about wildlife and about nature because I want people to protect and think about the environment but also I actually really just wanted to go on adventures and get paid for it that was really the <laughs> the bottom line for me that you know is, is if I can get paid to go on adventures that means I get to do more of them rather than save up to pay for them and have to go and do a job on the side. I mean remarkable in and of itself that you join the BBC and you um uh, you grow, you develop your career uh, to be directing programs, uh, ad adventure programs, exploring programs. But then, as you said, you made a choice and you said, actually, I want to do the exploring full time. So talk to us about that. Was that a difficult decision? And then when you did it, how did you do that full time? What did that mean for you? It wasn't, it's, it's funny, isn't it? It wasn't a difficult decision, but it was a decision I probably should have made a couple of years earlier. So several years before i went off to do full-time exploring adventuring adventure guiding i set up something called explorers connect which has been running for 10 years now and this is an, an adventure community it, it, I, I set it up in order to inspire people to do more adventure and i lead a lot of the adventures or over the part over the years I've, I've led a lot of the adventures that we run so I was, I was spending huge amounts of my spare time, or all my spare time, running Explorers Connect. And because I'd seen, for, for the, at the time, I'd spent maybe 15 years in adventure, and I'd seen it change people's lives, and it had changed my life. And I thought, why, and why don't we all do more adventures? When I set it up, I thought it was because expeditions change life. And, and i.e., if you go on, Every, everyone needs to go on one expedition in their life because it will transform them, it will embolden them, it will give them, it, it gives you such incredible power with the rest of your choices in life. I was running Explorers Connect in my spare time for several years and it finally got to the point where I was thinking, why am I spending every spare minute doing this? Why didn't I just do it full time? Because I, I was freelance anyway, so I kind of just thought, well, I'll take a six month break and see what I can do. I didn't know how I could make my passion project into a job. I didn't know yeah. how I could make a living from it. But I thought if I don't try, then I'll never know. So um, adventure does give you confidence. It does, does, it does make you realize that the, the worst thing to do is to not try. Um, the worst thing to do is to be meek uh, and, to, you know, and to let fear stop you. So I thought it could be a complete disaster and probably will be, but I might as well just try. I might as well just it hasn't been. 
it hasn't been. It's been a huge success, hasn't it? I mean, you've taken now tens of thousands of people on adventures uh, all over the world. So um, you've done incredible things, Belinda. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's, I'm not very good at taking compliments either. <laughs> it has been inspiring to me that I've been able to make a difference because I think when you talk about workplace happiness, there's nothing more wonderful, not just at work, but in your life, if you have meaning and if you can help someone, if you can change something, there's nothing more meaningful, there's nothing more fulfilling and worthwhile. Um, so the fact that it worked out was good. Um, it wasn't easy and there was all sorts of, there still are lots of mess ups along the way. Um, and also I'm not at the end of the journey. It's, it's not like Explorers Connect has, has remained the same thing over 10 years. My role within it and it has changed because it's very much my passion project still. It's not a business built around a, a business plan. It's a passion project built around what I want to do or what I feel I should do and trying to make it work. So it's a balance between that. And where, and where do you decide to... to so I had two questions that I, I think that our listeners would want to ask you. How do I go on one of these things with you if I want to? And, and how do you decide where we're going? It's very easy to join um, because you can look on the website and we have things, um, we have all sorts of adventures running. Although obviously through COVID, not right at the moment, but for next year. They are very much catered towards different levels of endurance and um, uh, you know time away from work because it is difficult. You know we can't we can't all drop uh, drop work for six weeks and go off somewhere. So over the years they've become much more and more accessible. And although I set up Explorers Connect and it's called Explorers Connect, I set it up to connect the current expedition world that was out there. And it was initially to help people who are already doing expeditions or who wanted to get into expeditions. It is now much more about helping um, connect nor you know, normal people with normal jobs and the normal stresses and strains that we have, you know, and the, the, the resources that we have to or adventure, both little, small, accessible, easy to fit in adventure, and also the big aspirational change your life kind of adventure as well so it is a lot more um explorers connect now and 10 years ago is a very different thing so you can come along and join uh, most people can join most of our adventures now it is now much more accessible the reason i've done that is because i realized i had more impact on more people by helping people to int introduce people back into living adventurously or to living adventurously rather than the people who were doing expeditions or were aspiring to that already. They, they, they were probably on their way and they didn't need so much help from me. And you, and you believe that the adventures help people's well-being and, and happiness. So, so tell us how you feel that works. We don't have time to get There's so much I could say about that. I'm currently writing a book about just that topic and I've spent the last sort of six or seven years doing huge amounts of research there is so much evidence for the benefit of adventurous living to uh, everyone at every age and in every walk of life. And so it's really hard to, uh, to encapsulate that. Essentially, over 25 years of taking people on adventures from small adventures to big overseas expeditions, 
I've seen it change people and have this transformational power that is really, really beneficial. It helps people to um, build better relationships. Um, it helps you to build your confidence because there's nothing quite so confidence building as when you've climbed to your first summit of your first mountain, you see the world differently, but you also see yourself differently. It's incredibly empowering. For me, I had, um, I had this very idyllic early childhood, but a very troubled later childhood. And I had very low self-esteem as a teenager. Adventure was my therapy. And I thought that was unusual and just for me, but over the years, I've seen that it's been a therapy for a lot of people. And not just, um, you know, for anxiety and depression and so on, but also for people who are doing well already, who just want to perform better, who want to, who, who want to become the best versions of themselves and to have the best lives possible and flourish. And to really flourish, you need to train, you need to have the right sort of activities. And adventure is this amazing sort of, I say, I say it's not a panacea, but I think it almost is a panacea. <laughs> It helps you to build yourself and your relationships much better and much stronger. You've been on lots of adventures and expeditions, and I'm sure that people would just like to hear a little about some of them. As I said at the introduction, you hold a Guinness uh, World Record for rowing around the United Kingdom. So that seems as good a place as any to start with some of the remarkable things you've done. How did you come to do that? I had been doing expeditions since I was 18. So I had been seeking that idea of pushing your comfort zone for most of my adult, well, for my, all of my adult life, really. I was working in expedition and I was working in adventure TV. I was traveling the world. I was going to lots of beautiful, remote, adventurous places. And so on the surface, it looked like I was really stretching myself and really being adventurous. But I'd actually got to the point where I, I'd done all that for so long, I didn't really feel like I was pushing myself. And I love learning and, I, and the best way of learning is to push yourself out of your comfort zone. So I was looking for something I'd never done where I could really throw myself back in the deep end. So jungles, deserts and mountains I had done a lot of, um, but I'd never really done anything in the sea. Um, I, I did spend a year teaching diving as a diver <laughs> in my early 20s, but I wasn't really... Um, I really didn't know what I was doing when it comes to going in the sea. So um, I heard about ocean rowing, thought that sounds interesting and totally different to anything I've ever done. I looked into all the ocean rowing races and challenges and what was out there. And when I heard about, and I thought these all sound brilliant, I've got to try one of these. But when I heard about rowing around Britain, the sort of red rag to the bull was, Dozens and dozens of boats have tried to go around Britain and, and in all that time, in all those years, only one boat has successfully gone around and all the others have failed. And that was it. I was like, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. And I, I looked into um, the boat that got round. It was four big, hairy mar marines, <laughs> bless them, four men. And I thought, right, well, let's do four women then. Because then it'll be a, I mean, I've never, I've never been... I'd never pursued a Guinness World Record, but I thought that would be an interesting thing to try as well. Let's try a world record. I didn't know what I was doing. I knew that I had a huge ex expedition experience and I knew that I could transfer those skills, but I didn't really know otherwise what on earth I was doing. 
I knew that I'd need a boat. I knew that I'd need four women, I, me and three other women. And so I put out an advert, some women, do, do you want to be the first women to row around Britain? I need a sa some sailors. I need some people who know what they're doing. And also I need a boat. So I started looking for a boat. And I've learned everything from there on. I mean, you know, I, I just immersed myself in it and learned how to navigate at sea. Okay, I'm quite good at it, but yeah, it wasn't that, I was never that good at it. We got stuck on a sandbar and all sorts of other things. Um, and yeah, we just learned it all from there. Did all the courses, um, found found the team, um, and put yeah put put it together, and off we went. Um, I mean, that's remarkable. How long did it take you? Well, we thought it would take about a month, but it took two months because the weather was horrific, and entirely in the wrong direction. So, I don't know if there's any sailors out there. You, if you sail around Britain, you famously do it um, clockwise because of the prevailing winds. Um, all the winds were the wrong way round the summer that we tried to do it. So we were constantly being battled, uh, embattled by the winds. So we had to keep stopping and putting the anchor down um, and just waiting, which was actually worse than rowing, just sitting on anchor. Yeah, so it was, it's the toughest expedition in various ways. And that was, that was a good, that was, that was years ago now, that's a long time ago. But <laughs> so, so, so then taking you from, from a wet and windy scene, you were then the expedition leader in the desert of death in China. So what were you doing there? Well, that was actually my first expedition I ever ran myself, led myself. So I'd done a number of assistant leading roles and joining other people's expeditions. And the very first expedition I set up myself was when I was a student at Oxford University and I, I, um, they have an expedition club. And um, I, I'm trying to think, how did I first hear of it? I can't actually remember. I love the name of it. <laughs> it's called Taklamakan, which translates as you go in, but you don't come out. And I thought that sounds amazing. <laughs> it's, it's other name, yes, is Desert of Death. So, um, I, um, and also, you know, I, I wanted to do it with my best friend and she needed to do her thesis. And so we were looking around ideas and we, we realized that I could do a camel survey there and she could do a sand stabilization. She did geography. She could do a sand stabilization um, study in the Northern part of that desert. And so we were like, okay. And yeah, put that together. Um, it was a complete disaster in many ways, <laughs> as I think anyone's first expedition probably is always going to be. Um, we didn't find a single, so our, our mission was to find these Bactrian camels. We found one um, <laughs> in weeks of trying, and that turned out to be a domesticated one. So it was a total disaster, really. But we all did come out alive. And so for me, it was a huge like with all failures, it was a huge learning experience and um, it was a huge adventure. And, and then you've, you've done so many other expeditions. I mean, we could go on for hours. You've cave paintings you've found in Lesotho. You've been to Alaska. You sailed across the Atlantic. I mean, you've done so many things. You've walked across Nicaragua. Um, but of all the exhibitions that, you, that you've been on, is there one that stands out? Is there one you think, you know what, that was remarkable. If I could do just one adventure again, that's the one I would do. Having researched the book recently as well, it has made me believe this even more. 
your first really big adventure, when you first take yourself into a new world and really find out who you are, that is the most important adventure to you, probably for the rest of your life. Mine was going to Africa when I was 18. And all these people I've interviewed recently, some of my young people that I've I took to like the Amazon, uh, something like 16 years ago, they're now gr proper grown-ups with their own kids and proper jobs, and, you know, and they talk about that expedition like it was yesterday, and we reminisce like it was yesterday. Your first big adventure is your most important one, and for me, that's definitely was the case. It, it changed my life. And, and it's clear to see how, um, how much you enjoy what you do. Um, and I know you've taken the, the Work or Workplace Happiness Survey. So um, how did you score in the survey? I, I got 96%, which I think it looked like it was higher than the average anyway. Uh, well, <laughs> so Belinda, the, the average uh, is, is at the moment 68%. So you're colossally above the average. Um, and I don't think we've had many explorers take the survey. I, I, I'm almost minded to ask, where did you drop 4%? But it seems a churlish thing to ask <laughs> because it's a remarkable score. And what it confirms is that you're clearly very, very happy doing what you're doing, um, exploring and helping thousands of people, tens of thousands of people develop themselves and their well-being and their happiness. And um, uh, I'm sh we're all really looking forward to your book coming out and, and reading even more about that. Um, but two questions to, to finish, if I, if I can. Um, the first one is, what piece of music uh, makes you feel happiest when you hear it? Oh, goodness. When you go on your expeditions, do you put on um, headphones and an iPod? Oh gosh, that's a really hard question. I have a very eclectic taste. <laughs> I love a good 80s ballad. <laughs> I love stuff you can belt out. I actually love, when I'm going on big long hikes, if, you know, the, the monotony is, is, is wonderful in some ways, it's very mindful. But I love to belt out ter terribly cheesy songs at the, at the top of my voice. So, um, um, you know, yeah sort of maybe not 80s maybe 90s sort of the 90s cheesy ballads are the, the sort of things that I will be um singing out at the top of the mountain somewhere um I do tend to not do it when I've got groups with me <laughs> um, unless they fancy doing it as well we did do an awful lot of singing on that boat around Britain um it was the biggest morale booster there is and did you have I a can't favorite, pick one piece. Did you have a favourite song on the boat? On the boat, I, I have a very, uh, we have a very vivid memory um, of that Katy Perry song, California Girls. <laughs> we were girls on the boat, or ladies on the boat, and it was, we just happened, not necessarily through choice, but it just kept blaring out on the radio all the time. And so we knew all the words. It was obviously the top hit of the time. And we would just sing it all the time because it, it was just fun and boppy. And it was, yeah, it was pop and silly. And it was, yeah, it was literally, we were kind of, it was forced upon us. But it is a good tune as well. It's a good tune. So yeah, that, that, that music is, that piece of music, that song is attached to that row, absolutely. 
And, and my last question is, is if you were to nominate somebody uh, to take the workplace happiness survey to discover whether they were really happy in their work, who would you nominate? Oh, there's so many people, goodness me. Um, the first person I think of, just she's in the top of my head and she's a huge inspiration, is a lady called Jo Ruxton. She directed the Plastic Ocean film and she, she essentially started the plastic revolution that we have, the anti-plastic revolution that we have now. She started it. I mean, she's just a hero. Um, I'd love to know, it's, it's hard being a hero like that as well though, so it'd, it'd be interesting to see, you know, she, it's a tough job what she does, but it, it is an extremely important one. Um, I don't know. Um, gosh, who would I want to? Um, I suppose also people who work for me or have worked for me. I'd, I'd, quite, like to, I'd, quite, like to, I'd quite like to think that they're getting good scores. So uh, maybe um, <laughs> maybe some of my team. <laughs> and tell me what what sort of how, how would your team describe you when you've been on exp expeditions? What would they say? I think it depends what expedition. You, you change over time and also you, you become a better leader with better expedition, with better experience. Um, when I was a very young leader, I had huge amounts of experience in extreme places and so on, but I didn't have the management of people ex uh, experience. So probably some quite negative things from some of them back then, although not most of them. I've gotten on with most of the people and most of my friends are lifelong friends of people I've been on expedition with so mostly I think I'd get very positive but there would obviously be a few negative things out there especially when I yeah you learn you make mistakes um along the way don't you um I don't know I think probably I would like I, I think people would think of me as being loyal I, I look after I I I for me loyalty is very important and also I am very loyal to those who I work with and who are fr and friends and so on. So loyalty is a big one. Um, ethical is probably another word. I'm very driven by, um, I believe, it, and it's quite a selfish thing. I think if, the more ethical you are, the happier you are actually. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I think those two words. Stubborn would be another one. <laughs> well, Melinda, can I thank you very, very much for, uh, for coming onto this podcast. It, it's been an absolute pleasure and inspiration to hear your remarkable story. Um, there aren't many people who set out in life to be an explorer and then actually become an explorer and such a successful one at that, having done so many amazing, unique things. I know people will be really keen to read your book uh, to learn more about what you've done and also the benefits it brings to, to well-being and happiness. But thank you very much for appearing on this edition of the Workplace Happiness Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co, where you can find out how you can get happier at work.